Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Lenny came in to see me after about three weeks and he said, Oh, Miss Michelle, I'm very worried about you. You know, you haven't made any money. I said, oh, so I said, Mr. Chan, we have. I said, there's money. I said, yeah, there's plenty of money. I just haven't had time to process it. I'm really sorry. I, he said, where is it? I said, it's all in a black bag. And he said, what? And I said, it's all in a black bag, but don't worry, I'll lock it in the fridge every night. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. And you are in the right place if you're after inspiration, uplifting stories and practical advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. So if you're looking to get ahead or trying to figure out what's next for you, stay tuned. And if you're enjoying our podcast, share it with a friend now. Absolutely. Share the love, people. And now to this week's episode. Our guest this week has taken the road less travelled and pioneered her industry in Hong Kong and China for more than 30 years. We're talking about one of Asia's most celebrated restaurateurs and a philanthropist as well, Michelle Garneau. Indeed we are. Michelle grew up in Australia, but always knew she wanted to travel. And the fact she founded and launched her business, the M Restaurant Group in Hong Kong in the late 1980s, makes her one of the first independent restaurateurs to set up shop anywhere in Hong Kong or China. In fact, Time magazine has described her as an industry celebrity and someone who pioneered the fashionable dining scene in China. There's no doubt she's a real pioneer. And Michelle's really well known for the upscale restaurants and bars she's created and launched in Hong Kong, Shanghai and Beijing, including M on the Bund restaurant still delighting diners in Shanghai to this day. It certainly is. She's also committed to giving back and founded the Shanghai International Literary Festival, the M Literary Residency, the Village People Project, and the fabulous women's initiative Mentor Walks, which she started in Beijing. Indeed. And Michelle's won numerous international entrepreneurial awards and accolades, and last year was awarded an Order of Australia for her numerous contributions to business and society. Incredible. Well, in this episode, you'll learn how Michelle became one of the most successful fine dining restaurateurs in China, her hard-fought lessons about starting and running a business, why she started out with her cash locked in a fridge, and how she had to fight to win back the control of her business. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the straight-talking and utterly fabulous Michelle Garneau. Michelle Garneau, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Well, it's wonderful that you're here. You've flown in this morning, I think, from yes, Hong Kong. From Hong Kong, yes. You're looking very sprightly, considering. Uh, thank you. Yeah, my eyeballs don't feel like it, but that's okay. <laughs> We are going to really have a very interesting conversation, I'm sure, knowing what we know about you. But before we really get into it, 
I wanted to start with something that we ask all of our guests, which is how would you describe to people in a couple of sentences what you do today? Hmm. Well, I suppose that's what everybody's first answer is. Hmm. Well, my main job is the restaurant business. So I have a business called M Restaurant Group. And at one point we had restaurants in three cities. We now only have one. We have two restaurants in Shanghai. So that is sort of my main job. That's the job that pays the bills and, you know, gives me most headaches, actually. (laughs) But it's great. It's also a fantastic platform from which to do other things. So actually, the rest of the things that I do tend to be, I'm on the Advanced Australia Board, which we could talk about in a minute. I think that's a great asset for anybody who is not based in Australia. And it is Australian? It is Australian, yeah. yeah. So it's basically a global network of Australians. And actually, that's why I'm here, because we have our big Advanced Global Awards tomorrow. So it's recognising global Australians in what they do. And I also have got a very dormant not-for-profit in China at the moment. That hasn't done very much, but it simmers along in the background trying to figure out how to negotiate its way around the world, which means around China. I started the mentor walks in, as you probably know, in Beijing, actually, to begin with. So, And that's in Shanghai and in Hong Kong. And I'm actually trying to put together at the moment a document so that it can be spread around the world. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Both Greta and I are mentors on yeah, mentor walks it's a great, in, in Sydney. It's a great thing. Yeah. So we'll, yeah. we'll talk a little bit about that thing yes, in, in a momento. But before we do get into your career, you grew up in Melbourne. Yes. In the 60s and 70s. Yes. As one of nine children, I think. Yeah, the oldest, yes. The oldest of nine children, Very which bossy. must have been crazy. What are your memories of your childhood? Uh, a lot of babysitting, actually. <laughs> I was very bossy. I have three brothers after me, so. Being the oldest, full stop, and then, of course, being female, I mean, basically, you have the full responsibility. And as my mother says, I don't have any children. As my mother says, Michelle did all of her, you know, mothering when she was a teenager, which is pretty true. She didn't think that I I heard her say that, but I did, and I was like, oh, I see. Yeah, that's quite an interesting idea, isn't it? Yeah. So did it put Um, you off? Oh, completely. Absolutely. I mean, I love kids and I'm really great with kids. I love being around kids, but I love not having them. Yeah. I I understand that well. There's plenty of kids around. That's what I sort of say to friends. Plenty of kids around. If you want kids, just borrow a few. (laughs) Send them home again. And so it sounds as if your your family would describe you, you said, as bossy. Oh, it's entirely bossy. Still am. And what other words would they choose to describe you? Oh, I think bossy's probably the first one that would come to mind for all of them. Do you think yeah. if you had been the eldest but a boy, do you think oh, yeah. you'd have been, been called bossy different. or no. you'd have just been yeah. called a true, no, a natural leader? A natural leader, exactly. But yes. actually I think that they would probably call me a natural leader. No. Right, okay, yeah. great. And I think part of that is actually being part of a big family and having to organise other people, you know, was, and having that responsibility, which I think women always end up having. You know, our flaky brothers were all just sort of flaky. Whip them into shape and let's get started. Yeah, you know, so and then I then so that there's me and three brothers and then two sisters and then one poor brother in the middle and two more sisters. So you know, and we're quite close. My younger sister's thirteen years younger than I am. Gosh. So we're pretty close. First six of us are six in a row. So I spend a lot of time, you know, hanging nappies on the line. And so when you think about your childhood, apart from having to step in and, and mother the rest of your siblings, how do you uh, think it of it? It was quite, it was not a very normal childhood in many ways. 
So it was a fairly erratic. My father wasn't around a lot. My mother, who's still alive, my mother's 83, is a remarkable woman. And I think as a teenager, you know, you sort of um, had terrible time with my mother. I must have been the most horrible teenager. You know, but now I sort of look back and I think, my God, you know, I mean, that job that my mother did pretty much by herself was remarkable. You know, so I don't see my childhood as being very normal. And I was Catholic and went to a Catholic school. And maybe there was more pretending of how people's lives were. But, you know, I, mean, I don't think anybody had divorced parents and most other people had the parents around. So I knew that our family was a bit strange. I think what I remember as actually too much responsibility, that's one thing. But also Melbourne was boring in the 60s. People talk about idyllic childhoods, but you know, it's a lot of housework, a lot of jobs to do, you know, which I don't think really hurt anybody, but there wasn't much to do. And was the, the dullness and the hard work the thing that made oh, I you mean, get I out? Oh, I mean, I just was absolutely, I was like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. The minute I could go, I'm out of here. Yeah. I'm going. Where did you sort of first go when you decided to I went to Greece. Okay. I went to Athens. I went into a travel agent and I said, I want to go somewhere. I don't really mind where, but I don't really want to go to London and I don't really want to go to India. And they were like, sorry. And I said, well, everybody goes to London. I don't want to go there. And I don't want to go there. I'm not interested in sitting around smoking dope all day. I'm not looking for a spiritual journey. So I'll just go somewhere else. And they said, what about Athens? I said, oh, that sounds good. Athens sounds nice. Ancient Greece. Oh, that sounds great. So I left three weeks later. With what intention? I don't really know what the intention was, but I think it was also, I mean, I look back now and I realise I was just one, I was terrified. You know, when I got on that plane from Melbourne, and flew to Sydney and had to change. I think it was like seven flights to get to Athens. And, you know, I sort of got on the plane and I thought, what am I doing? I don't know anybody. I didn't know anybody outside. I think I had two friends in Sydney. knew somebody in Adelaide. Not one soul anywhere else in the world. But I think it was sort of accepted. People did it. You know, young Australians did it. It was like, oh, another Aussie off around the world. So... I guess a lot of people didn't do it by themselves, but I think a lot did too. So it was sort of like intrepid travellers, off we go. And, you know, I've had some pretty hairy situations in those first few weeks, but I did sort you? of toughened up quickly. Uh, what type of situations? Mm, sort of some not very pleasant ones actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you're sort of like you're young and naive and you look naive and you look like you don't know what you're doing. And yeah. I remember walking down like the second or third day in Athens, walking down the street crying, thinking, what on earth am I doing? What am I going to do? I'm going to wander around this city. Where am I going to go? So I toughened up pretty good. I mean, I was tough. You know, I went to Elwood High School. I was a tough girl. I was pretty streetwise. I'd grown up in in Elwood and St Kilda. So, you know, and I had a foul mouth on me. So, you know, I could get away with a lot. But, I mean, as a young girl, I think it's something that people don't really talk about. But as a young girl you know, you're susceptible to just being, you know, harassed, being sort of sexually harassed. And that's a great thing about getting older. (laughs) (laughs) doesn't have the attention to you anymore. It's like, oh, there's sort of quite a lot of relief in that, actually. So your travels certainly got you away from the boring. Certainly got me away from the boring. And actually within a couple of weeks, I went to Crete, and within a couple of weeks I had met two or three friends who I'm still friends with. Fantastic. Yeah. And if we sort of fast forward some of the travels, what drew you to food? I was gone two and a half years, about, no, a little bit more than two. 
And I came back and I thought, I don't really mind what I do, but I want to be able to travel. And so I went to find out about the travel and tourism course. And I went to William Anglis, which is the sort of catering college in Melbourne, which is where the travel and tourism course was. And I took their little booklet. There was no internet in those days. And I looked at all of this travel and tourism, which was basically learning IATA schedules around the world. And I thought, oh my God, I'd die boredom doing that. And then I thought, that catering course looks quite interesting. So I thought, why don't I go and do a diploma of catering? And my auntie came with me, my auntie who turned 80 last month. So she said, I'll come with you. So she was matron of a hospital. She decided she'd come with me. So we went to William Anglis and we did a certificate of catering. Within a couple of months of doing that, actually I think within a month of doing it, I decided to cook. So the cooking class was, you know, the, both the chefs in the cooking class said, you're a born natural, you should be doing it. I was like, all right. So maybe we'll transition to you starting your first restaurant because you ended up in Hong Kong. You started your first restaurant, which I think was called Michelle's to start with, and then it became M. It became M at the Fringe. fringe. What was it like? Because it was was the 80s, wasn't it? It was 89. 89 in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong at the end of 1989. Yeah, Yeah. very interesting time. Mm Mm-hmm. Was Tiananmen Square just happened? It was six months before. Well, we opened at the end of November, so yeah, June. Yeah, Yeah, right. So really, really interesting time. Can you give our listeners just a a bit of a visual or, you know, the understanding of how it felt and what, you know, what was it like? To start a business? Yeah, to start a business in Hong Kong. Well, I had a boyfriend who was a chef, who was an extremely good chef, and he wanted to open a restaurant. And I kept saying to him, you're out of your mind, you know, like open a restaurant, you must be crazy. Anyway, we sort of worked towards it. And then Greg was really, he got really sick. He actually had to come back to Australia and wait for a heart transplant. And he's since had another heart transplant. He is quite remarkable. He's still going strong. But I decided to go ahead and open the restaurant by myself. I thought... What made you do that? I thought I came back to Melbourne. It was winter. I spent three months in Melbourne working in a restaurant in Carlton where I made 25-litre batches of like you know bolognese sauce or seafood sauce or that sort of thing and massive plates of spaghetti with a very actually he was a very good chef he'd been the chef at Mieta's restaurant and he said I'll give you a partnership you know if you want to take it and you could stay and I thought this can be my life or am I going to go back to Hong Kong and do something by myself and I decided to go back I didn't have any money I have a business partner we're still partners we've had our ups and downs in our partnership but we are still partners 32 years later or something we've been partners Um, he was a financial guy so he put together a deal where he had control in the beginning and after five years I managed to wrest control from him we nearly split up our whole partnership but it didn't it survived and we're friends and we're business partners he has nothing to do with the business yeah you know he looks at annual accounts every now and again quite an achievement 30 years plus to be you know oh yeah absolutely yeah absolutely I think mutual respect and also actually when I know that when I had you know I started with no money I borrowed a bit of money from my mother and my sister to actually have the share that I had in the restaurant but we had control between us that was how he did a very clever structuring of the deal. he always says we should have actually franchised the structure of the deal not the restaurant itself (laughs) which could have been true and then when it came to 
pulling it apart and I said to him, I won't open anything else under this same thing unless you give me control of the company. And so we went back and forth and back and forth about me buying two shares from him or three shares or something. And then he had these crazy prices and I had somebody else advising me. They are now business partners in another business. They didn't know each other then. And I had somebody else advising me and she said, okay, so you get him to that point and when he's asking you for an unreasonable amount to buy the shares, tell him that you'll sell him all of yours on the same price. And I did and he said, you know, touche. And we didn't talk for about six months and about six months later he came and it was my birthday and he called me and he said, hi, he calls me Mish. He said, hi, Mish, it's your birthday. And I was like, hello, Michael, how are you? You know, quite cold. And he said, why don't we have lunch? And I said, okay, great idea. So I thought, okay, well, there's some sort of truce coming. And he gave me an envelope and he said, open it. And I said, no, it's okay. I know what it is. He said, you know what it is? I said, yeah, it's the shares, isn't it? And he said, yeah, but how did you know? And I said, well, it was a smart thing to do. Now we can do other things. <laughs> Great. So and he said, I taught you too well. I taught you too well. I said, no, Josephine taught me quite well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great to have those advisors, isn't it? It was actually, and actually that was something that I will say as a lesson for women in business. Don't put all your cards on the table. And actually I had her in the background. I hardly knew her. She was introduced to me by a friend who said, you should talk to her. She's a lawyer and then she was a banker. And, and she said, okay, I will give you some advice. And I said, but I could never afford to pay you. You know, how do I pay you? Which I think a lot of people end up with a small business. It's like, how do I pay somebody who sort of charges a whole pile of money? And she said, you don't have to pay me. She said, but next deal you do, I'd like the right to buy in. Oh, right. And I said, all right, okay. And she's still one of our partners. Great. And now they're partners in other ventures. Yeah. He's on her board and she's on his right, board. Right, right. Yeah, so. yeah, amazing how it goes. So I think it's really also important to know you can't do it all yourself. Absolutely. And you can't ever have all the skills Of course you yourself. can't. Of course you can't. You know, I mean, there's enough skills you've got to have in running a business. And I think what you have to be careful of and what I learned is that there is you know a lot that people will help you with to a certain point but then you can't expect it for nothing you have to pay people and if you can't pay them their regular rate is $500 an hour if you can't do that then I think you really have to work out what you can give them yeah and honor that yeah and be yeah. innovative and in be innovative yeah absolutely yeah. yeah that was important and you talked about running a business and here you are this young Aussie girl who's been to sort of a catering college and a culinary school a bit and and then you're running a business. What was the, the toughest thing or what is the toughest thing for you in kind of successfully making sure that the business has been as sustainable as it is? Oh, I think there's a few points, but I think one is that, I mean, any business has got a lot of balls to juggle to it. And there were things that I totally dropped. I remember right at the beginning, this is when credit cards had to be run through a machine and you had to get authorization code for every credit card on the telephone. And, you know, there were only two people who worked at Amex who gave you authorization, you know, just a nightmare. And I remember at, right at the beginning, the little funny old man from the bank who'd come in and helped me set up the visa and the Amex machines and they were processing all of it at my my Hong Kong bank Wing Lung Bank 
uh, Mr. Chan, he was absolutely lovely. And he came in to see me after about three weeks and he said, oh, Miss Michelle, I'm very worried about you. You know, you haven't made any money. I said, oh, so I said, Mr. Chan, we have. I said, there's money. I said, yeah, there's plenty of money. I just haven't had time to process it. I'm really sorry. Uh, he said, where is it? I said, it's all in a black bag. And he said, what? <laughs> it's all in a black bag, but don't worry, I'll lock it in the fridge every night. <laughs> I literally had like a travel bag full of cash and credit card slips. And I just was too busy to sort of process it. And this very honest man, I hope, I think he was honest, sat down and helped me process all of this in account, all the cash and take all of the credit card slips and put it into the bank account. And, you know, and then I had to pay people. I was like, oh my God. I got the end of the month. I have to pay people. Yeah, cash flow. So yeah, I mean, you know, did I understand cash flow? Anyway, I think that there's a lot to deal with. Again, got to realise you can't do it all yourself. And one of the things I did do, I I made some terrible mistakes early on. One was give shares to four people in the company very early on, which was really stupid. No vesting period. That was a really dumb mistake. And then I made an even dumber one further down the line because of that sort of dumb one I'd made I then was way too complicated with it and I went to a big you know human resources advisory company in the 90s and we had this complicated share employment scheme that took forever to undo you know just was so complicated undoing it so I think it's sort of knowing for the size of your business who the right people are to involve yourself with. So, you know, we I had one restaurant. It had 65 seats. I can't tell you how many people said, you know, you should IPO. <laughs> I thought, you know, I mean, what sort of crap is that? Yeah, You should great. IPO with one restaurant with 65 seats. Oh, you know, you can do it. So, and, you know, other people would say to me, oh, I'm thinking about that. And I think, gee whiz, you know, that's sort of crazy. So I think it's sort of understanding where you are. And, and of course, other people never understand the complication of your business. They just don't. They have no idea how many elements it takes to run a business. And so when people say, oh, you should expand, you know, and I did, you know, I'd sort of say, oh, I'll go and have a look then at Jakarta. And I remember going to Yangon and thinking, what the hell am I doing? Like Burma in the 90s. What a lunacy is this? in 2019. Maybe. (laughs) Josephine now has a business in Burma and I'm like, no, I'm not going. Thanks very much. So I think, you know, you've got to have a sort of sense of conviction and strength that you can listen to people and also not be so cocky that you say, oh, piss off with your smart ideas, you know, sort of thing that you say, oh, yeah, great, you know, thanks very much, you know, but just move on. And I think that's really important to understand in business. And I think you learn those things over time in business and also how to deal with staff. I've got a, an assistant in Hong Kong who's worked with me for 28 years and we have staff in China who've been with us since we opened, which is 20 years ago. Amazing. It it's, is amazing. Yes. It is amazing. I mean, yeah. in China, people stay because when you when they go, they want to be fired because when they go, they have to be paid a month for every year they've worked for you. So there comes a point where people don't leave and some of them you sort of think, oh, I wish they would leave. But people say to me, oh, it's remarkable you've had people stay with you so long. And I said, it's not rocket science. You have to treat them properly. They have to have a life, i.e. you work them 90 hours a week, which is what I worked when I was first, you know, my first 20 years in the catering industry. People have got to have a life and they've got to have their own life. 
you know, you're not all married to each other and you've got to pay people properly and you've got to treat them well. And you talk about China and the restaurants that you have had and still mm. have in Shanghai. Yeah. So what was the the driver to expand from the from super Hong successful Kong. M mm. you know, at the Fringe? Well, to- M at the Fringe was pretty tiny. Yeah. I mean, it was a small business. Was it boredom by any chance, Michelle? No, not really. No, I don't think it was boredom. I mean, I had a very, very strong moral sort of ground at the time that I didn't believe in expansion. I, I'm sure I sort of said, oh, I don't believe in expansion. Why is it necessary? But I think when you work with other people, you have to be offering opportunities to people. You have to, and they get bored. I think also, you know, Shanghai, Bruno and I, so Bruno worked with me for 25 years. He's now back in Holland and loving being back in Holland. But I remember him coming to Shanghai for the first time saying, we should open a restaurant. I was like, you're out of your mind. And I said, definitely not. It was mid-90s. And I said, you know, Bruno, maybe in five years, which is funny because it was nearly five years later that we did open. You know, I'd always really loved Shanghai from the first time I went there in 85, I first went there. And Shanghai's got a sort of an, an allure to it. You know, it's even just the name, you know, people are like, oh, It's Shanghai. exotic. It's exotic, you know. And, and it's a really, really interesting city. And so I think that when... The opportunity came, I went and I kept looking at it. You could see it was on a cusp of, you know, China was changing. And I think in many ways we were lucky that when we did open, I thought it was like torturous, you know, like four years of working on this. But actually when we did open, I think we were very lucky. I think we had exactly the right timing. You know, we were a window to the world. We opened on the Bund in Shanghai. There was nothing else down there. Everybody said it'll fail because nobody will go to the Bund. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people go to the Bund every day, but still most of them are not our customers. A lot of provincial Chinese tourists. So I think, you know, we we did something new. We pioneered something new, and it was also this remarkable location overlooking a city that was being built on the other side. So I think in the year, in 99 when we opened, we were in this perfect position you know, we had the whole world come to us. It was easy to talk to us. We spoke English. We'd done something that was accessible. Absolutely. Yeah. And 20 years on from M on the Bund, what is the secret to your success in creating these extraordinarily long-lived restaurants, which is not a common thing? Do you think, for example, it's your attention to detail or your focus on the customer I think it's probably both of those things. But I think that that idea that you can cookie cutter a restaurant is a really difficult one and most people fail. You know, you sort of need that real corporate mentality behind you to do it. And I've seen things, you know, set up where they go in with that idea to begin with. And then I think the challenge in China is, you know, sort of keeping up with what's going on with China and the world. You know, I've seen so many people come in with quite a bit of arrogance, either sort of like totally demure saying, oh, I know all about face and I know about guanxi. And I know it's like, I mean, guanxi is a worldwide concept. Nobody likes to lose face. Nobody on the planet wants to be made to look stupid. And actually, guanxi is the same everywhere. If you know people in the right place, you have got an advantage that other people don't have. So I think guanxi is pretty straightforward. But I think in China, you have to be sort of fluid. You have to 
go with the flow. I mean, when we opened, there were, of course, tons of laws in place. You know, a hygiene bureau is unbelievably strict. I mean, I walk into most restaurants in Australia and I think it would never be allowed. The hygiene bureau is so strict. You know, so there are things, and fire bureau, but maybe they've got more reason to be. But I think that there are many regulations that have come in that you have to work around. You know, you're in a foreign country and I've seen people come in with like, oh, you know, this is easy market, I'll kill it. You know, with a certain amount of arrogance and it doesn't work, you know. And people don't do the homework. They think I've got some unique product. But, I mean, everybody you ever talk to doing business in China says, my God, the challenges, you know, they were just things that I had no idea about. And I think you have to come, you have to do your homework. I did all the market research myself and where things didn't, the the business I did that didn't work well was Beijing. I mean, it was a beautiful restaurant and if you went there as a customer, it was delightful. As a business, it was a disaster. And that was because I didn't do the market research myself and I didn't open it myself and, you know, I basically had somebody else do it. You know, the ideals were too big and there was too much money spent on it and then we could never recoup it. So actually, I think it's also managing the size of a business. You go into a new market, and even in Beijing, you know, Beijing and Shanghai, it would have been like, well, it's still China. It's a completely different market. Yeah. It was so different, I couldn't believe it. And it still is, you know, and then you go to Guangzhou and you think, totally different city. Yeah. And Hong absolutely. Kong on top of it, you know, Hong Kong, another totally different city. So there aren't these sort of lessons I think it's the same really all over the world. I don't think you can come and open a restaurant in Sydney and think you can automatically expand it to Melbourne and Adelaide and Perth. I think that's right. But I think maybe when you come in as a foreigner, it's even more complicated because you don't understand some of the rules and the cultural differences. I think I was sort of lucky at the time. I was fairly novel. I mean, there weren't many independent restaurant people. I was really one, I was really one of the first. And we were independent. I had a very good joint venture partner who didn't care less what we did as long as we paid them the annual fee, so I didn't have to deal with those problems. You've started some uh, pretty amazing projects as well as these restaurants, whether it's literary festivals Mm. that you host regularly in China or mentor walks, which you mentioned earlier, this fantastic initiative for mentoring young women. What sort of drives you to to start these things? I think that that is what keeps it sort of interesting and active, you know, is that you've got other things happening. I mean, the great thing about having a business, it takes a lot of work to run a business properly, but it doesn't necessarily take all of your time. I mean, a lot of those things grew organically. And what about mentor walks? Because that's a wonderful initiative. Mentor walks, actually, I was at Credit Where Credit's Due. I was at the Dell Women's Conference in Shanghai in 2010, and there was a woman called Geraldine Laybourne sitting in a panel on stage talking about something, and she said, oh, I got asked so often to mentor people that I said to my assistant, I'm not meeting anybody else for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. I will two or three times a week, meet people in Central Park. I will walk with them for half an hour. They can walk with me and that's it. And I'm not following up and I'm not doing anything else. So you can schedule who you want. They can do it and that's it. And I thought that is genius. And I went up to her at the end of it and I said, excuse me, but could I talk to you? And she said, yes, you can in about 20 minutes and you've got half an hour. <laughs> I said, but I, 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 I said, oh, but I, I need more time. I said, can I have a later slot? I need to think 
more clearly about what I want to ask you. And that really prompted me to think, actually, you've got to be prepared. And so I did. I ended up having lunch with her and talking to her for a while. And she said, you know, Vital Voices run this mental walks thing once a year, you know, around the world. And it's big. And, you know, look it up. And I did. And I actually had a friend who worked at Vital Voices. And I asked them for their, you know, how they did it. I tried to talk a ton of other people into it. And I was at that point living in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Beijing. I have three apartments in three cities. And I thought, I just can't do this in any of these places by myself. The Australian ambassador had a lunch and there were 20 women around the table. And she said, I'd like to have one idea from everybody. I nearly was bursting at the end of the table <laughs> because I was hanging to ask me, ask me, ask me. And so I said, I have an idea and I want to start this mentor walks thing. And, you know, basically it'll be mentors only for women. People sign up as mentees and I've got to figure out how to do it. Does anybody at the table want to do it? And I had two women, one ran UNICEF. And another one was a sustainability officer of Coca-Cola, Chinese-American, and they both said, we'll do it with you. And so we started it together and we, the three of us, really got off the ground. And now it's taken flight because... Well, you know, two years you, later we went to Shanghai. Yeah. So people in Shanghai heard about it and they were like, oh, you should start it in Shanghai. And I'd say, you should start it in Shanghai. <laughs> you know, I haven't got time. But what did the different sort of way that we run it in Shanghai and Beijing because we actually run it as group of organizations. In Shanghai now there's eight chambers of commerce or sort of women's networking groups who are part of it. And in Beijing it's still five groups who run it. So it's not run as one single entity. So and then Which we take great. turns to run it. Yeah, and of course it inspired um, it say, friend it Bobby, say Bobby and Adina because so, they came on one. That's right. And so yeah. now it's taking flight all it's around Australia, all around Australia which is fantastic. If you think about advice to women who might be thinking about starting their own business, mm. whatever endeavor and field that may be, what would your top two or three tips be? in a fairly concise way. Do your market research, do your market research, do your market research and actually do it yourself. You know, you can get, you can pay for market research. I have very often found it's not very useful and you have to have some differentiating aspect to your business. What am I going to do that's different? And also I think actually you have to have a business plan. And I have mentored now thousands of young women myself over all of my years of mentoring now. And I say to all of them, you've got a business idea? Have you got your business plan? And they're like, oh, yeah, well, I didn't really. And I say, really? How is it coming? Is it on board? Have you got your cash flows? Have you understood what cash flow is? Have you got six months of cash flow? What is your cash flow? How much is it? And they're like, oh, well, it depends. And I say, it depends on what? What, would you pay yourself? Would you pay somebody else? You've got costs when you start a business and you've got to have cash flow. And I think there's really classic mistakes that people make and then they wear themselves out. They kill themselves working and then they wear themselves out. And actually, I think the other thing is you've got to pace yourself. It's not sustainable that's, if you don't pace yourself. That's great advice, but it's not advice you hear that often. Yeah, because I think lots of people are sort of gung-ho and they think I'm going to set this up and I'm going to sell it. Yeah. And it's like, actually, it's not that easy to sell a business. No. Because I, where's the value in the business? And very often businesses that are started, you know, by individuals actually are not really transferable. So 
This is a question that we ask all of our guests. Mm. What advice would you give your 30-year-old self if you could go back there right now? Hmm. I'd say enjoy the whole journey more, actually. And, you know, somehow I've been through a lot of ups and downs in business. Things work out in the end. And actually to sort of know that actually things do work out in the end. They might not work out as you envisaged or as you wanted them to work out, but you have to find a way around challenges. You have to, otherwise, you know, it all falls apart and you can't have it all falling apart. So maybe worry a bit less about it all. And the things I worried about, I look back and think I worried about competition, you know, opening next door and did nothing but really increase the business. You know, sort of funny things like that. Yeah, so I think, you know, I look back and think just actually enjoy the journey more and, you and know, worry less. And worry less, actually. It's great advice. Because all the worry in the world doesn't change anything. It doesn't help you think clearly. I've been through a couple of periods where I've had really re- an enormous amount of stress and not slept and I think not being woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown but being like two seconds away from a nervous breakdown. And, you know, you sort of come through the other side of it and think, well, it didn't help. Not sleeping, not, you know, all of that yeah. worry. And, and I think people can get stuck in that and they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And there is light at the end of the tunnel no matter what it is. As I just said to our landlords, I've closed businesses and it ain't fun, but I'll do it again if I have to. Yeah. Worry less, I think, is a really common theme that w- yeah. we hear and it's so important. And I think uh, I know I, I need to take that pill more often for sure. Well, Michelle, we've come to the end of our time. You've been very generous with your time today. Pleasure. Claire and I can't thank you enough. If our listeners are interested in finding out more about M on the Bund or you, where would you recommend they go online? Um, probably to our website. So we have a website, just type in M on the Bund Shanghai. There's, there's a website there. Um, we also have Facebook page, even in China where you can't have Facebook, and WeChat accounts, of course, which is our big tool. WeChat is an enormously important marketing tool for us. And for mentor walks in Australia, go to mentorwalksaustralia.com.au, I think it is. Well, Michelle Garneau, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. I'm so in awe of what Michelle's achieved. You know, it's just not easy to start your own business in a country that's very different to your own, particularly one that's in constant change as China has been over the period she's been there. That's for sure. It's not easy, as you say. I loved all of her stories. Michelle's clearly had some both hilarious and knuckle-whitening experiences, it seems. She sure has. And the thing that I feel about Michelle is that you can tell she's just got this incredible energy, Yeah, she? yeah. You know, she's a real force of nature. And she's definitely not slowing down either with all the amazing things that she's doing. I, I've just got to say also that you and I, we both love taking part in mentor walks as mentors, don't we? Oh, we sure do. It's one of our favourite things to do. And if you're in China or Australia and have a burning career question you'd love to explore with a senior female leader, then definitely check them out. Links are on our episode page. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. We're actually going to take a bit of a break over the holiday period and we'll be back in mid-January. Indeed we will. So from both Claire and I, happy holidays to all of you. 
And to those celebrating Christmas or Hanukkah or Omisoka, that's in Japan, or any other festival in the coming weeks, our love and warmest wishes to you. And as we look towards the beginning of a new decade, we wish you don't stop us now quantities of health, joy and courage to back yourself through those challenges and opportunities. Yeah, you've got this. And thanks so much for listening and coming along with us on this journey so far. You are one among many from more than 105 countries, and we couldn't be more grateful for your support. Yes, you. Absolutely. Well, take care and please look after yourself over the holidays. See you in 2020. Ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.